Welcome back to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, everyone. I'm Ross Thorburn, and in this week's episode, we are looking at tasks and interactions with young learners and looking at how those can help kids learn a second language. My guest today is Professor Rhonda Oliver from Curtin University in Perth, Australia. Professor Oliver has done a huge amount of research in the area of second language acquisition, and a lot of that is related to kids and kids using tasks. So in today's episode, you'll hear Rhonda and I talking about why interactions are important in second language acquisition, tasks that work well with children, how to make tasks at the right level cognitively and emotionally, where we should put tasks in lessons, and finally, how often should we repeat tasks? Enjoy the episode. Hi Rhonda, welcome to the podcast. To begin with, before I ask you about tasks and young learners, tell us a bit about interactions and language acquisition. Do you want to tell us about how interactions help people acquire language? And maybe you might want to mention the interaction hypothesis there. Um, for input and output to come together in a meaningful way, you do it through interaction. So, um, and anybody who's tried Duolingo, you know, you can learn quite a bit. And I did it before going to Spain. I, I had lots of words. And then somebody asked me quite a simple question. And by the time I had constructed the answer, I think we'd gone on to another train stop. <laughs> And it was too late for me to give the answer. Um, so it, it's because we're getting lots of import and lots of explicit instruction, but no opportunity to interact. And an example was actually with Mike Breen, and I saw his wife's name written down and I thought it was Sarah. And so I was talking to him and saying, how is Sarah? And then he said, oh, you mean Sarah? And I was like, oh, yeah, Sarah's well then, is she? So in that context of interaction, getting feedback, even when it's really explicit, you do change your output. And you also, you know, hear how it's said and so the input helps. And so that is, is kind of in a nutshell what the interaction hypothesis is about. It's about interacting meaningfully with somebody which gives you all those opportunities for what you need to acquire language, input, output, feedback, a focus on form but not forms. Sarah Sarah is a form rather than forms. So that's how it helps acquire language. Now, I think most of us will be aware that kids tend to interact in some different ways than adults do. So if we can give a communicative task to a group of adults and that helps them acquire language through interaction, does that also work for kids? Oh, abs absolutely. And in fact, um, my early days as an ESL teacher was working with the real little kids. I was in a junior primary, so five to eight-year-olds. But I went to this wonderful PD one day and they were talking about learning language. And I can't remember anything else that I learned that day, except I was sitting there watching a video that had been filmed in the UK in a multi-age classroom. And there were these two boys undertaking a task. 
and they were using language and they were debating about language. And one boy had Punjabi as his first language. The other boy was an English boy and they were interacting, they are arguing, and the Punjabi boy was learning English really, really well. And I was watching this video and I went, huh, I already speak English really well. How come in my classroom up to then I was the one doing all the talking? I knew how to speak English. It was the kids that needed the opportunity to interact, to use language meaningfully. And I went back and changed my whole classroom and set up tasks. And so some of the tasks, I, you know, I would have a water box in my room and we'd be doing volume in maths, but the kids would be measuring the different and how many cups it took to fill up this bottle and how many cups it filled to fill this jar. And they'd be arguing, no, it's two, no, it's three, no, you need more, put more in here. And they would be not focused on language at all. They'd be learning maths, but at the same time they would be using language. Or, you know, we would have different animals and they had to work out how many legs this animal had and, you know, did a horse have four legs and a chicken has two and they'd be completing the task and working out and arguing about coverings and I'd have a shop like a kindergarten would have a little shop with food in there and they'd go up and play shop and count out their money and ask for you know a potato and whatever and they were tasked because I'd be telling them what they'd have to do and if I could use an example from adolescence one of the teachers teaching um, maths actually uses budgeting and uses real life tasks and the kids get paid into their bank account, pretend bank account in his classroom, and then each week they have different tasks, how they're going to work out the food budget, how, you know, what happens if the rent goes up, what are they going to change in terms of that? So their tasks and their arguing and their their listing and their writing what they need to buy at the shops and their, their tasks and their learning language at the same time. Now, those tasks that you just mentioned there are things like working out a budget for adolescents or for younger kids, guessing how many cups of water it's going to take to fill up a jug. I think those are great examples of tasks which are going to pique students' interest. Now, I know you've done research before with young learners which highlighted the need for tasks to be cognitively and emotionally demanding. So tell us a bit about that. What makes a task demanding cognitively or emotionally? And also, why is that important? So it needs to be at the level that the students are at. And so some work that Jen Philp and Susan Dushne and I did was looking at the engagement they have. And so we sat down and got ecological validity, asking teachers in the school where we're collecting the data, what kind of tasks they'd like, what topics they're going to be doing in the future. And we ended up with these tasks around sports today. They were going to have an athletics carnival. And so we created all these lovely tasks around that. And we wanted to look at age differences, so we tried to choose tasks that were somewhat in the middle, not too challenging for the young ones but not too easy for the older ones. But, in fact, what we found that the tasks, we, some of them we developed, were too easy for the older students. And so because they weren't cognitively challenging, if I talk about a matrix activity where you have, for instance, a host of animals along the top and different body parts down the side and they say, for instance, does a horse have hair? Yes. Does a cow have hair? Yes. Does a chicken have hair? No. And so that's what the older students were doing. The younger students were fascinated by it. You know, it was where they were at. I don't know. Have hair? Maybe fur. I don't know. What fur? 
what's that? I don't know. So, you know, it was where they were at. It wasn't where the older students were at. So the language that they used was pretty formulaic. It wasn't very interesting. And the mouth is moving, but the brain's not engaged. And so there is a need for cognitive engagement. And in terms of emotional engagement, when, for instance, there's a mutuality amongst the students, when the pairs are such that they work collaboratively, emotionally supporting each other, the language is much better than when you have, say, if you have a controlling and a submissive kind of partner together, the, the one will just take over and say, well, I think horses have hair, so we'll write hair and cows do too. And the other one just sits and goes along for the ride. I think that's really interesting about having more dominant students in a pair just taking over group work. I think a lot of teachers kind of assume that if you put a stronger student with a weaker student, the stronger students are going to help and prompt weaker students. But I think, as you said, often it can just result in one student taking over, right? Um, so when I was first teaching master's students um, at a university and I had about half the class were international students and half were local Australian students and we had a tutorial where we were going to discuss and explore together and it was, oh, it was going to be fabulous in my mind and we'd get there and about three or four of the local students would dominate the conversation and nobody else would say anything. And the international students were quite happy with that. That was it was quite comfortable. They didn't have to put themselves out and have risk of humiliation by saying something wrong. And it just drove me crazy. So I then split the class into groups and we conducted our tutorial in group work. And at first I put an international student with some of the local students thinking they'd be really great for supporting them, you know, the higher, it'll be, it'll be excellent, it didn't work. It was, it was no different but just in a smaller scale. And then finally I put international students all together and local students all together and it was amazing. I couldn't get myself heard in the classroom. And it was interesting watching the international students work together because at first they all sat there looking at each other. <laughs> Who's going to crack first and speak? But then it was like they knew that, you know, their language wasn't at risk because they were with other language learners as well as being master's students. And they did. They took over. And the interesting thing was initially I planned the groups, but after a few weeks, I allowed them to form their groups. And so people started moving around. Yes, some international students kept together and some moved themselves into a local group to extend themselves because they were emotionally ready for that kind of engagement. But just throwing them into a whole class situation at the beginning was wrong. So, you know, if I had advice for teachers is play with the dynamics, see what works and doesn't work in your classroom. Now, another aspect of tasks is where you put tasks in the lesson sequence. And I think there's two schools of thought here in general. One is that you put the tasks later on in your lesson so that students get to practice the language that they've learned earlier in the lesson. And then the other idea is that really you put your tasks near the beginning of the lesson to find out what students struggle with. 
and then teach those things that they're struggling with afterwards. With young learners, which of those approaches do you think is more effective? You know, if they don't have the vocabulary, for instance, to undertake the task, and one of my ex-postdocs, um, Ahutsani uh, Askaray, did exactly that. She just gave them a task with no language and they all sat there looking at each other. So she then actually provided some vocab to get them started. And I know in some of the tasks I did very early on, I did the same thing. I actually had students doing picture placement tasks, but I actually had what they were underneath. I didn't give any of the structural forms, you know, where do the cups go or do you have a loaf of bread on the cup? I didn't have any of that. I just had the vocab items. And it was interesting to see how they would play with different forms of questions to use it. But I was with quite, you know, low intermediate students, so they needed that. Or advanced students, it's actually teaching them to be autonomous learners. Oh, you don't know the name of that. How are you going to find it out? Yeah, I love that idea of teaching students the language to ask things like, how do you say that? Or can you say that again? Or what's that thing called? Because those are really useful and helpful in tasks, but they're also really useful outside of the task, just in the real world, when you're trying to pick up a new language. Exactly. And the other thing language learners do, will do is innovate. Because if they are cognitively engaged, if it's a task that matches where they are developmentally, they will try different forms and ways of doing it. And then if their partner isn't clear what they're saying, they will step outside those questions and negotiate for meaning till they get to the form they need. So if it's too prescriptive, then you will get a horse has hair and a cow has hair and chicken has hair. And there isn't that kind of engagement that you would like with interaction. Finally, Rhonda, can you tell us about task repetition? Why is it useful to repeat tasks with students? Task repetition, I don't know why we're so averse to it in classrooms because in much of life, that's what we do. Think of all those people, I'm not one of them, that love cooking. If that's not task repetition, I don't know what is. We are comfortable in doing things that we can keep repeating and improving upon. Uh, a study that um, Alec Kangadis and Alison Mackey and myself did was doing exactly this with young children, five to seven-year-olds, and repeating tasks, and sometimes using the same procedure but with different vocab items and sometimes with the same vocab items and different procedures, different tasks, ideas. And it does result in different things. Task repetition did learn to different sorts of acquisition. And, and the other thing is the kids would say, I love doing that. I love this task. I want to do this. You know, I love this game. I don't even know it's a task. I want to do this again tomorrow because once you learn something, you do want to repeat it. And you will, it's a little bit like a, a spot the difference, if you like. You might have seen these things missing today, but tomorrow you might identify more or different things. One more time, everyone. That was Professor Rhonda Oliver. For more from her, click on the link in the show notes. For more from me, check out my website, www.tefeltraininginstitute.com. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye.